Well, good morning. <clears throat> that was pretty thin. Good morning. <laughs> much better, much better. Good to be with you here today. Uh, you know, Pastor uh, Jessica hosted well, and she used a, uh, uh, a word that's kind of a common buzzword today of our time. It's the word connect, and I'm glad that she used it because I like the word. Uh, let's connect. We should connect sometime. Um, why don't you fill out a connecting card? I, I noticed, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but they changed it. I think it used to say connecting card. Now it's just welcome to Central, but we still know it as a connecting card, and, uh, and I appreciate that, and that's what I still call it. There is a, a yearning in every human heart for connection. In fact, God has designed us that way. He has wired us that way, that we would want to connect relationally with others and with Him. Now, one way people feel that they can connect to God or to connect spiritually is through the church, and rightly so. And so when Pastor Jessica talked about um, people maybe coming to the church, coming to see us here and worship with us next Sunday, maybe for the first time in their lives, or maybe they go once or twice a year at Easter or Christmas or some of those key times, it's truly because they want some kind of spiritual connection and they, they feel they can find that in the church, and that's a good thing. But what connects me, possibly, to a local church, a local body of believers, or what connects with me at this local uh, uh, gathering of, of Christians is going to be different for, uh, from what you connect with. I mean, some people connect uh, this, you know, they came here to connect today because of the music. For some, it is uh, the sermon, or possibly you're here because of a connection through the youth group, or a great children's ministry that we have, or a fabulous women's ministry, or something like that, a life group. For others, you connect because of a pastor, but probably not all nine of us, maybe just one or two pastors. Um, you know, not everybody here this morning is going to connect with me. I know that. Why? I don't really know, but I, I get it. Uh, I, I mean, I've come, I've, I've come to embrace the fact that I'm really not that young anymore, so I possibly won't connect with the young people. But I'm not that old either, okay? So, uh, although I, I find that I sometimes connect better with those who are my elders. Um, one thing is for sure, uh, you won't connect with me because I wear skinny jeans. Thank goodness, because you don't want to see me in skinny jeans. Uh, I ride a motorcycle. Some of you could care less. I'm a, I'm a farm kid from Saskatchewan, and the only reason I said that is because I just have to throw it in at some point in all of my sermons. <clears throat> but there is one thing, one thing, however, that transcends any barrier from connecting with God and with each other, and that is the unchanging connection of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ connects us to God and to each other at not only the deepest levels of, of, our, of our being and our, and our hearts and our souls, but at levels that I believe every human heart on the face of the planet can identify with. And so this morning as we, as we look in our, our next text, which comes so wonderfully in our series that we've do, been doing as we approach Good Friday, and Easter Sunday is John chapter 19, verses 17 through 27. And in here, we're going to talk this morning about six points of connection. 
with God and with each other because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's read John 19, verses 17 to 27. So it says, They took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. There are six points of connection, of sure connection for us this morning <clears throat> because of the cross of Jesus Christ that are common to every human experience. Number one, the burden of the cross. <clears throat> the burden of the cross. So, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. When it says that he was bearing his own cross, it was... Very true. The cross was heavy. Very heavy. Um, I think it's four years ago now, um, at Easter, um, our daughter got married between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and I had the privilege of officiating the wedding. But I think what was almost a greater privilege for me was spending time with my soon, very soon-to-be son-in-law making a cross. They wanted the cross of Jesus Christ to be central to their wedding day, central to their marriage. And I was so pleased that I was able to preach and, and officiate at her wedding with a, a large cross looming behind us that was actually in larger focus than anyone standing in front of it. It was probably eight feet high. And I worked for a local guy here who specialized in reclaimed lumber, and I went and asked him, if I could have that piece of wood, and he hummed and hawed for a while <laughs> because it was a very valuable turn-of-the-century reclaimed piece that came out of a barn back in the day when these things were literally hewn by hand. And it was, it was a plank that you don't see anymore. I think it's 12 inches wide and probably 3 or 4 inches thick, 8 feet high, and I can barely, I can barely handle that thing by myself. And that's on a good day. The, the cross of Jesus Christ was larger, heavier, 
And Jesus had just been scourged and beaten and whipped and spit upon and had a thorn of crowns stuck in his head and he was asked to bear this cross. Other gospels uh, say that the soldiers compelled a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for Jesus. This is not a contradiction in the Gospels, Jesus did bear his own cross, but literally when physically unable to carry it any longer, someone else had to bear it for him, but it still represented the cross of Christ. Now, what you need to understand about the cross of Jesus Christ and why the Romans had a person bear their own cross was that only the worst of sinners, rebels, to the state, to the governor, the Romans were executed on a cross. And so part of the humiliation and the, the whole process of crucifixion was they had to literally fall under the burden or the weight of that cross and everyone would watch them carry it to the place where they would be executed. And it was a sign to everybody around them that you do not want to be a rebel against the authority of the Romans because this is the price that you will pay. And Jesus bore that burden. He bore the burden of the rebellion and the rebellious hearts and the sin and the objection for you and for me. He bore it to God. I just want to read for you a couple of verses out of Isaiah chapter 53 and read verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Rebellion. That's what sin is. It's rebellion. It's telling God, I can do it my way. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I don't want to live according to what you say. And that is what Jesus came to bear where it says, and the Lord laid on him. He put the burden of all of that on him, the iniquity of us all. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. <laughs> That's us. It's me. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Listen, oh, what a beautiful thing. First Peter, Peter wrote, you'll see it behind you, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Jesus bore the burden and the weight of our sin so that our burden and the weight of our sin might be lifted as we come underneath him. And if there's any one thing that all people can identify with, I believe it is the burden and the weight of sin. Because there is not one who has not sinned. And if you claim to be without sin, Scripture says you're a liar. And if there's any one thing I also know, it is that all people desire to be healed, to be set free and to have that burden lifted. To be made whole, to be complete, to be at peace. 
And I want to say to you this morning, if you are bearing the burden and the weight of your own sin and you desire healing and peace and completeness and wholeness, come to the cross. This is the unchanging connection of the cross that all of us can identify with. One of my favorite hymns um, back in the day, I don't know if any of you remember, now I'm showing my age, the Haven of Rest Quartet. Does that ring true with anybody? They, they've done some amazing music, just pure vocals and harmony and a lot of the old hymns, but they sang one that written in 1707 by Isaac Watts. I still have it on a CD at home, and it's called, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed? And Did My Sovereign Die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Can you sing that song this morning? Can you sing it? And, and Jesus said to us, Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Listen, the cross of Christ, when we take it up and we bear it daily, means that we place ourselves under the authority, under the submission of Christ, of God, and we say, I'm done. I'm done rebelling. I'm done with myself. I'm done trying to do it my way. I'm done with sin. Lord Jesus, I fall under the burden that you bear for me. And he promised us that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. And when we fall under Jesus, he will lead us forward. Amen? The burden of our sin was borne by him. We submit to him so that we don't have to submit to our own sin. That's an awful thing to submit to. It's a burden too heavy to bear. But we also, I believe, when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must daily take up his cross and follow me. We must do that so that we feel the weight to appreciate the cross. C.J. Mahaney uh, who wrote a book called Living the Cross-Centered Life, Keeping the Gospel, the main thing, he said this, unless you see yourself standing there with the shrieking crowd full of hostility and hatred for the holy and innocent Lamb of God, you don't really understand the nature and the depth of your sin or the necessity of the cross. The second point of connection is not just the burden of the cross, but the place of the cross. The place. Verse 16, again, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha or Golgotha. The place of a skull 
or the place in other gospels, the place of skulls. Not a pretty picture, is it? Literally skulls lying everywhere. A place dedicated for execution. A place just outside the temple gate, the gates of the city of God. Some scholars believe that when Jesus was condemned, he was led through the gate of the city of the temple to Golgotha. And that gate is actually called Lion's Gate, the one that is nearest to that little hill called Golgotha, just outside the city. You can see it from the temple. There's pictures of it. Isn't it amazing that the Lamb, the innocent Lamb of God, was led through the Lion's Gate representing the tribe of Judah, the Lion and the Lamb who was led to the slaughter for you and for me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He suffered outside the gate. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 15 and other places in Scripture, but Numbers 15 explains that when someone had sinned and was worthy of death, a death by stoning, they literally were taken outside of the city because there could be no sin in the camp. It had to be removed. And they would take that person outside in their shame and in their isolation and they would bear the weight of their sin literally as they were stoned to death. Listen, Golgotha was a place of condemnation, a place of rejection, a place of isolation, separation, brutality. Take them outside the gate. Listen. If there's another point of connection to the cross, it's here. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and how many times I've felt myself that my circumstances, my life is just too far gone. Separated from God, separated from others, feeling rejected, condemned. How could, how could he, how could they love me after what I've done? Some of you literally have been rejected by your own family and your own friends because of what you've done. And the self-condemnation and the self-loathing is your daily diet. Again, C.J. Mahaney said, the personal desolation of Christ is ex- that Christ is experiencing on the cross is what you and I should be experiencing. But instead, Jesus is bearing it and bearing it all alone. Why alone? He's alone so that we might never be alone. That's the connection of the cross. That Jesus bore it alone. He suffered outside the camp in isolation, in rejection, in condemnation, that we might not experience that. Paul, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, neither self or from others, or from God, or from Satan, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to believe this truth. The true connection to the cross. Richard Foster said, in celebration of discipline, the path to spiritual growth, he said, love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. 
Golgotha came as a result of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering, he could actually absorb all the evil of humanity and so heal it, forgive it, and redeem it. Do you believe that this morning? Do you identify with the place of the cross? Are you in Christ this morning? Number three, the third point of connection for all of us is the centrality of the cross. Verse 18, there they crucified him and with two others, one on and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. I love the imagery of that. It was very intentional that two would be crucified with him, one on either side and Jesus between them in the center. And we know from the other gospel accounts who those two others were. They were guilty. Unlike Jesus, they were truly, they truly deserved to be there because they were rebels, they were sinful, they had done crimes and they were getting what they deserved. One of them, however, mocked Jesus and didn't believe at all that he could save himself, let alone others. And the other one rebuked <laughs> the other criminal and said, no, 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 no. This man is innocent. And he is able to save. And he begged Jesus for mercy and said, please remember me when you go to your father's kingdom today. And said, Jesus said to him, I tell you, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. One was saved and the other was not. And Jesus was in the middle. And Jesus stands here in the middle, center of it all. And he asks you for a decision today. If you are not in Christ, will you mock him and his ability to save? Or will you... Will you turn to him and beg for mercy and say, please remember me in your Father's kingdom? That's all it takes, friends. That's all it takes is for you to submit to that and acknowledge that and say, I, I, I choose, I choose to believe that you are able to save, that you're able to deal with my sin and bear the weight and the burden of my sin. And that's the irony of the cross is that what it connects, it also divides. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, but Paul said, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen, this morning, do you know the power of God and the wisdom of God? Do you know Christ? Because if you don't, you're not saved. Psalm 118, which is quoted by Matthew, also quoted by Luke in the book of Acts. The psalmist said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It, the stone, Jesus, is, is become the cornerstone, but it was rejected by some. It, the cornerstone is the most important piece to the structure, absolutely central to the integrity, to the longevity, to the stability of, of the house. Without a proper cornerstone, it, it doesn't work. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul picks up again when he says, we preach Christ crucified, and he said, look, I'm taking it even further. For, what I, deci for I decided to know nothing, nothing, nothing else matters. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross is central to what I do and to who I am. Why? Because... There is acceptance and forgiveness when we acknowledge his innocence and our trespass, when we acknowledge that what we deserve he bore. It is central 
to our faith. But you know, what's interesting is that the, the, where the cross intersects, um, at the very moment where Jesus was between two guilty people, representing two types of responses to his kingship and his authority, he was also positioned on that cross in a vertical way between those two and God. First Timothy chapter 2 says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at its proper time. You see, the cross represents this horizontal positioning at which a decision must be made, but it also represents this vertical positioning, that point at, where, at which Christ intervened on our behalf. And that's the beauty of the centrality of the cross. It is that place of sure connection. Number four, <clears throat> the fourth connecting point through the cross of Jesus is the inscription of the cross. The inscription of the cross. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So like, they didn't put it that far outside the city, just far enough that when people were coming in, they would see the horror of the execution and probably turn away, but because of curiosity peak and just like, ooh, what's happening there? And, and central to the cross, and at the top of this cross was this huge, huge placard, this sign, this inscription. And then they would stop and they go, wait, I haven't seen that before. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and this inscription was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests, not impressed of the Jews, they said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said he was the king of the Jews, and Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. This inscription, this sign, was both a declaration and a witness. The fact that Pilate had it inscribed in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek is so significant. And what it says to us, what the cross says to us, is that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Master, Ruler, King of all. These were the known languages of that time. You had to speak one of them, and you had to read one of them. Everybody would have understood this. And upon the Jews' protest, don't write that, Pilate insisted, no, no, no. It is what it is. He is the king of the Jews. This morning, I want to ask you the question, is he your king? Is he your ruler, your Lord, your master? Does Jesus have authority to lead in your life, truly lead you? Where every decision, every action, every conversation, every business deal, every relationship is brought under the submission of the king. J.C. Ryle, um, expositor, author, commentator, he said this, Christ's death is the Christian's life. Christ's cross is the Christian's title to heaven. Christ lifted up and put to shame on Calvary is the ladder by which Christians enter into the holiest and are at length landed in glory. And it is only through the king that we can enter the kingdom of God. Again, is he your king this morning? If not, will you invite him today to rule in your heart, in your life, because that's your connection. That's your connection to God. 
Number five, the fifth connection is the shame of the cross. And I want to let you know right now, this one here, really all six of these are a series. I'm going through this real quick, you guys, in one, in one sermon, okay? The shame of the cross is so significant. And listen, I have, I have gone through Freedom Session personally a couple of times, and I've, I'm, I've led it a few times, and I'm currently in, a, in another season, uh, our second time around in Agassiz now of leading Freedom Session, session and I tell you, one thing that is just common to everybody who truly, truly is honest about their lives is shame. Shame impacts us for whatever reason it is that we have shame in our lives. And there are many reasons. Shame impacts us at the very core. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which is Psalm 22, which says they divided, by the way, Psalm 22 is also the same passage where Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) Why? I feel completely alone here. Where it says, They divided my garments among them, and they set my clo- and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, whenever you see a depiction of a crucifixion um, on television or for film, <clears throat> Jesus is portrayed on the cross as uh, mostly naked. You know, they except for this nice little loincloth, right? Not so much, not so much. When it says in Scripture that they took his garments, they took his garments. The cross was the most painful, humiliating, and shameful experience possible. And not just physically, but emotionally, and psychologically and spiritually. Let's go all the way back to the beginning for a moment. I want to just take you in your minds to Genesis for a moment. When Adam and Eve were created, they existed for a period of time in sinless, naked bliss. (laughs) I mean, they walked around in their birthday suits 24-7 with zero shame. In fact... Scripture says that they didn't even know that they were naked. It's just the way they were created. Perfect. It's the way God wanted it. But at the moment, and when I say the moment, I mean the very moment, the precise moment that that blasted fruit was bitten. (laughs) Scripture says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Sin's very first point of impact was on our sexuality. Bringing shame. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Then it says that they hid, they went into hiding, they were embarrassed, they were ashamed, they were exposed, they were caught with their pants down, literally. And and just before they were banished from the garden, Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments. He made them garments of skin and clothed them. 
Let's go back to John 19, verse 23, just for a moment here. Let's look at that word again. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless. It was one piece woven together top to bottom, which truly covered Jesus. There's a little footnote here that beside tunic that brings me to the bottom, and it says it's the Greek word chiton, which means a long garment worn under the cloak next to the skin. This was Jesus' undergarment that covered him completely. I would, I would venture to guess that most of us, if not all of us, have in one way or another been impacted by the shame, humiliation, embarrassment, and pain of our sin for whatever reason at various levels. But I would venture to guess that maybe all of us here today have been impacted in the area of our sexuality, in the area of shame or humiliation or embarrassment or pain. And the shame of the cross meets us there as Jesus goes back to the nakedness of the fall to cover us. But it goes back even further. What was done at the cross is a reversal of the curse. It is a reversal to that time when there was no shame. Jesus dealt with it all at the cross. Scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin. He became cursed. He became shame. He took on all of that for us. That's what Scripture says. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it gets even more specific. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. John Piper said this about shame. In fact, he wrote a whole article about what it means for Jesus to despise shame. And Piper says, shame was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had. His friends gave way in shaming abandonment. His reputation gave way in shaming mockery. His decency gave way in shaming nakedness. His comfort gave way in shaming torture. His glorious dignity gave way to the utterly undignified, degrading reflexes of grunting and groaning and screeching, and he despised it. And Piper goes on to say, I can just hear Piper preach. Have you ever heard Piper preach? Oh my goodness, I've heard him in person. It's amazing. Piper says, and what does this mean? It means Jesus spoke to shame like this. Listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think that you have power? Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, joy, joy. That is my power. Not you, shame. You are worthless. You are powerless. You think you can distract me? I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you? You are ugly and despicable, and you are almost finished. You cover me now as with a shroud. Before you can say so there, I will throw you off like a filthy rag, and I will put on a royal robe. You think you are great, because even last night you made my disciples run away. You are a fool, shame. You are a despicable fool. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, they are all my sacred suffering and I will save my disciples, not destroy them. You are a fool. 
Your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Farewell, shame. It is finished. Do you believe it this morning? That your shame is finished? Come out of your shame and, 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 and come to the cross. Hebrews chapter 4, the author continues to say this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Come to the cross. It is a place where you'll find mercy and grace and where your shame will be utterly and totally despised. And finally, number six, our final connection through the cross is the compassion of the cross. Verse 24, so the soldiers did these things But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her home, took her to his own home. Now Mary, despite how many people today feel about her or view her or magnify her. Mary really did not fully understand what was happening at the cross, what was happening to her son. In fact, at one time, together with her other sons, she even tried to pull Jesus away from the cross and she, they, they, they took him and they said, look, look son, um, you're, you've taken this a little too far. I mean, people think that you're insane. And it's kind of reflecting on the family. You know, we don't want to be known as the family who has the son who's nuts. So why don't you just come home? And Jesus said, you know what? You know who my mother and my brothers are, truly? They're the ones who will follow me and do my will. And I'll see you at the cross. And even there, especially there, Jesus felt nothing but compassion and he thought nothing of himself and he said woman now this was not the way we think of addressing someone as woman today this is a respectful term of endearment in the original language just so you know Jesus said woman dear mother behold your son Philippians chapter 2 so if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves each of you should look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others listen at the cross Jesus wasn't even thinking at all about his own interests He was in agony, suffering, bearing the weight of the sin of the entire world, and he was thinking about his mother. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. At the cross, Jesus considers us and he unites us. We become family. Jesus' mother was not, it was probably the Apostle John, the the disciple that Jesus loved. 
They weren't, they weren't connected by, by blood. They weren't related by blood, but they became connected by the blood of Jesus. There was an adoption that happened. There was an inclusion. There was a connection. At the cross, we belong. At the cross, Jesus includes us. He invites us into his family. He adopts us. And he says, look after each other. I love that Christine, uh, before she led worship today, quoted from Galatians, because I had in mind to do that too. Galatians 3.26, and it's referenced again in chapter 4, this adoption theme. But Paul wrote, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters, children of God through faith. Oh, the wonderful, unchanging connection of the cross. It is at the cross where our burden is lifted and rolled away. It is at the cross where we are brought near. It is at the cross where we find mercy. It is at the cross where we find our king in the kingdom of God. It is at the cross where our shame is despised and at the cross where we all experience the tender compassion of Jesus, prompting the Apostle Paul to write in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen. That's the connection of the cross. Which prompted Paul again in Galatians to write, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Friends, the the things that we often hold dear and the things that we so often boast in, they change. Pastors come and go. Music styles last but just a moment. Programs get rewritten. But the cross remains. Look to the cross. In what and in whom will you, will I this morning, in what will we boast? Let's pray. And as we conclude in prayer and as we sing some songs, there are people throughout the congregation, you'll see them standing off to the sides and in the corners. There are people here to pray with you. And I invite you this morning, come to the cross. If any one of these things or all six have connected with you, come. Come to the cross and receive what Jesus has for you this morning. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you. Thank you for the cross. Oh, the wonderful and changing connection of the cross where we find that relationship with you that we desperately long for, where our burdens are lifted, where our shame is dealt with, where we find mercy, where we experience you as our leader and as our king, where we, where we find compassion. Oh, God, all I, all I can say this morning is thank you for the cross. Thank you. Help me, Lord, help us to boast in nothing else. In Jesus' name.